Welcome to the St. Emlyn's Podcast. My name's Simon Carley. Now, I'm not actually on the podcast this week. The podcast this week is all about thromboembolism. It's not really my area of expertise, but we have two people who are going to be awesome today. Rick Boddy, you know him well, and Kirsten DeWitt from McMaster and University. Now, Kirsten used to train in Manchester. She's a Virchester alumnus, but now she heads the thrombosis service at McMaster University with some of the greats of thrombosis and emergency medicine, people like Ian Steele. So let's get on with the podcast. Let's learn about new oral anticoagulants. Welcome to St. Emmeline's podcast, Kirsten. Hello, Rick. Thanks for inviting me on. Well, thanks a lot for joining us. It's a huge pleasure for us to have you on the podcast. My first question for you, Kirsten, is actually quite a really simple one. I want to know, what does NOAC really stand for? These drugs have been around for a little while now. I always thought that it stood for novel oral anticoagulant, but I guess that a drug can only be novel for so long. There's been some discussion here as to whether that name's appropriate anymore. Some people also call them new oral anticoagulants and uh, they're no longer new. An alternative has been proposed as a direct oral anticoagulant, the DOAX. The DOAX, well there you have it. Kirsten, how do these agents actually work? Primarily these medications work directly by inhibiting clotting factors. Two of the widely used new oral anticoagulants, rivaroxaban and apixaban, are factor 10A inhibitors. And if you remember back to your clotting cascade, factor 10A promotes conversion of prothrombin to thrombin. The bigger chan is a little different. It acts a little lower down the pathway as a direct thrombin inhibitor. And you might remember that thrombin promotes fibrinogen conversion to fibrin which is the final stage in clotting. Well, that's a really good, simple rundown on how the NOACs actually work. If the people listening are anything like me, hearing anything about the clotting cascade instantly fills you with dread because you remember those painful hours spent as a medical student revising all of the details. And I imagine that people are thinking the same thing when it comes to remembering the mechanism of action of NOAC. But there's a really easy way to remember how each NOAC works, and that's from the the drug name. So in general, if there's an X... In the word then it's 10a inhibitor and if there's no x then like the bigger trend then it's likely a direct thrombin inhibitor so what are the possible advantages of the noax because we've got a clear alternative right we've got the vitamin k antagonists like warfarin and we've been using those for years and years why should we entertain the possibility of using these newer drugs instead Well, the advantages are manifold. First off, these new medications are tablets. So when you compare them to something like low molecular weight heparin, there's an obvious advantage in that it's a tablet form and more acceptable for patients. The big advantage over warfarin is that we don't need to monitor the levels of these drugs and we don't need to vary the dosage. Essentially, every patient has the same dose each day. The patient doesn't need to visit the hospital for a blood test. Family doctors and hospitals don't have to have the setup in order to monitor INRs and contact patients with results. There's also quite a significant advantage that patients don't need to be overly concerned about their diet or their alcohol consumption. With warfarin patients are often worried about vitamin K consumption and they have a freedom there on these new medications. There's another benefit that in general the newer medications cause less bleeding and that's a significant benefit to patients who have a risk of bleeding. 
And there's also some evidence in the phase three trials that they may in some instances be more effective than warfarin in preventing stroke. So we can see that there are some real advantages to the use of NOACs here. What are the indications for the NOACs? So the main indication is stroke prophylaxis in patients who have non-valvular atrial fibrillation. And the vast majority of patients who are on one of these medications are on for this indication. So you can imagine that once a patient is started on an anticoagulant for stroke prophylaxis, they'll remain on that medication for the rest of their life, unlike the second indication where we use it to treat venous thrombosis, deep vein thrombosis and pulmonary embolism. And in that case, the patient may or may not require long-term oral anticoagulation. And then the third major indication is prophylaxis after knee and hip surgery. And now, as a standard, we use extended prophylaxis for either two weeks or a month, depending on what kind of operation the patient's had. So the prophylaxis indication is quite interesting. On the face of it, it wouldn't seem to affect us so much in the emergency department, but we do use anticoagulants for prophylaxis. We use it for our inpatients who are at relatively high risk of thromboembolic complications. And we also use prophylaxis for patients who have lower limb injuries, for example, might need to be put into a plaster of Paris. Could we use the NOAX for that sort of indication as well? We still have ongoing studies looking specifically at these indications. Similarly for inpatient prophylaxis in the medical population and in the cancer population. So I think we have to watch this space as to the exact results of future trials. But for sure, it would appear that these medications could potentially be as useful. Okay, great. So there's still a bit of work to be done in those areas. In terms of the general use of NOACs then, are there any situations where we'd really need to be careful about prescribing the NOAC? For example, are there any cautions, contraindications, interactions that we really ought to know about? Yes, there are several contraindications. The first really is renal failure. And it's very important that we calculate the creatinine clearance. For example, an elderly patient who might be in their 80s or their 90s, even with a seemingly normal creatinine, the creatinine may be, say, 100. If they're very small, so they might only weigh 50 kilos, when you calculate the creatinine clearance, it might be very low. And in general, all of these medications are contraindicated if the creatinine clearance is less than 30. So the first and most important contraindication would be renal failure. I've also mentioned weight and age. Uh, one of the new medications, Apixaban, actually comes with an indication if patient weighs less than 60 kilos. If they're age over 80 or their creatinine is over 133, they advise giving a lower dose. So if you have two out of those three risk factors, they would say give the 50% dose. So secondly, the important thing for us to watch out for is interactions with other medications. And for anticoagulants, this is probably even more important than when we prescribe other kinds of medications. So if we prescribe an anticoagulant, which will interact with the medicine with the end results that there'll be a higher level in the plasma, then the patient's very likely to bleed. And if they have a bleed in the brain, then they have a stroke or they could die. So it's really critically important we're aware of the other medications which could interfere with the elimination of these medicines. In particular, we're interested in the liver inducers and the liver inhibitors. 
The medications that we would always try and avoid co-prescription with would include anti-HIV medicines, antifungal medicines, some antibiotics, even just clarithromycin, erythromycin and rifampicin for TB. And then the other group of patients we're careful with are the people who have epilepsy who are on phenytoin or carbamazepine. Because if you remember back to our old medical exams, they were the classical inducers. And then last of all, there's some controversy over other cardiac medications. And it's not really clear about which instances we would not give new oral anticoagulant. However, we know that there's likely some interaction with amiodarone and possibly with quinidine as well. So drug interactions is the second important thing to watch for. The third thing as we go with any anticoagulant is if a patient has recently had a bleed, then I think we would be really careful about starting any anticoagulation. And certainly it's something we might think about bringing them into hospital for anticoagulation rather than sending them home on a new medication. And it might be more appropriate to think of maybe intravenous heparin because we can stop that and we would expect that the effect to have gone within six hours of stopping. The next group of patients would be cancer patients. And that's really twofold. So one is because if they have cancer, they may well be on chemotherapy. And many of the chemotherapeutic agents will change the way the drugs are metabolized. And secondly, our chemotherapy might interact with absorption. And we know there's been one study that certainly compared warfarin to low molecular weight heparin for the treatment of acute venous thrombosis. And they showed quite clearly that there is a more potent effect at preventing recurrent venous thrombosis with injections versus warfarin. So we would still say for now, I would avoid prescribing these medicines in patients who are being treated for cancer. There may well be more information available in the future as there are some studies ongoing. And then there's a couple of other groups, obviously pregnant ladies, there's no information on safety in pregnancy and breastfeeding, so I would definitely avoid. And patients with liver dysfunction, particularly rivaroxaban and apixaban are metabolized by the liver. So cirrhotic patients or patients with other liver diseases or maybe acute cholecystitis wouldn't be great candidates. And then maybe just last of all, dabigatran has been associated with a likely increased risk of myocardial infarction. So although patients with atrial fibrillation may well have cardiac disease, it might not be the best choice to put those patients on dabigatran and perhaps one of the other medicines would be better. So I guess the most important ones for us in the emergency department might be things like renal failure, <laughs> liver failure, particularly, as you say, for rivaroxaban and apixaban. And then we've got to be careful about interactions with liver enzyme inducers, for example. And then lastly, there are those things that might make patients more likely to bleed, such as low body weight and advancing age. It strikes me that lots of those cautions and contraindications are sort of generic to any patient starting any anticoagulants. Is that true? Do you think that, that there's, there's something in that? Yeah, and, and obviously I didn't even mention in that list, but if the patient has thrombocytopenia, as platelets less than 50, I think you would be really careful of prescribing any anticoagulation, probably best left to the haematologist. We talked earlier on about one of the key advantages of NOACs being that you don't need to monitor them as you would with warfarin. 
In fact, if we did measure the INR or the APTT, we probably wouldn't see much difference in patients who are taking NOACs. They're a little bit similar to low molecular weight heparin in that regard. But is there any monitoring at all that's necessary for patients who are taking NOACs? I think the most important monitoring would be to monitor renal function. Here in McMaster, when we're prescribing the medicines in the thrombosis clinic, we always ask the patients to see their GP in order to have a renal function blood test once a year. There would be other times that that would also be important. So if a patient's acutely unwell, it's really important to double check the creatinine clearance because acute deteriorations in renal function could lead to accumulation of these medicines and particularly so for dabigatran. So if we start these medications afresh in the emergency department and we send the patients home to be followed up by their GPs, at what stage should we think about rechecking their renal function for the first time? Well, I think that would depend on the patient. So if it's someone who's otherwise healthy, relatively young, with little or no comorbidity, they'll probably only need their renal function checked in a year's time. But if it's someone who's in their 80s, they're known to have a degree of renal impairment, they've got a variety of different risk factors for bleeding, they might have vascular disease, diabetes, the kind of patient you would expect to run into problems with renal function, then it might be more important to have their renal function checked every six months. And if it was found to be deteriorating, then the family doctor might need to reevaluate. Okay, so with regard to follow-up, you mentioned earlier on that these patients may be followed up by their family doctor, but we're starting with these patients on new agents. Don't we need to arrange follow-up with a haematologist in a specialist clinic, for example? That's an interesting question too. So I'm a little out of touch with the UK system, but here in Canada, it depends pretty much where you live. If you live in a major city, there is very likely to be a thrombosis group who will receive referrals, in which case... We tend to follow up on these patients, albeit even once a year, although we do on occasion hand the care back solely to the family doctor. However, if you were to become sick, let's say you were diagnosed with deep vein thrombosis further up north in Canada, then you don't have the option of being sent to see a thrombosis specialist. You may or may not have a local respirologist or a haematologist. So the options then are you might be followed up with just an internal medicine doctor or, or even the family doctor. And we find more and more that actually the emergency physicians and the family doctors in the more rural areas are very adept at dealing with these and looking after these patients. That's pretty reassuring about the way we need to practice in the UK. Locally, uh, we've been using NOACs for a short while now, and we do exactly that. We arrange follow-up with the GP, and the patients don't come back to a specialist coagulation clinic or anything like that. So I think that people can feel pretty reassured that GPs generally around the country will be fairly happy to follow these patients up. I'm very interested actually in the the system that you work in. I know that you've been to Ottawa to work along some fantastic people like Philip Wells and now you're at McMaster, another centre of excellence. I'm really interested to hear about the system that you work in. Is it right that you work in a specialist thrombosis clinic attached to the emergency department? Yes, that's right. So the thrombosis service is twofold. First of all, they have a clinic 
where they follow patients mainly who are on anticoagulation for a variety of reasons and also follow patients who have bleeding issues and anticoagulants. We also do diagnosis and treatment of venous thrombosis and give advice on stroke prophylaxis. And then the second aspect is the hospital, the other specialties can ask us to come and review their patients if they have specific questions. These range from what's the most appropriate prophylaxis after hip surgery to patients who come in with acute stroke to patients who have an acute bleed while they're on long-term oral anticoagulation. So we see quite a range of patients. Thanks, Kirsten. It's been fantastic having you on the podcast. I've really enjoyed this basics podcast about NOACs. I've learned so much. Thanks, Rick. Thanks very much. So I hope that you've enjoyed this podcast. I hope that you'll join us for the next one and learn as much as I have. From St. Emlyn's, take care.